Hi, I'm Michael Morris. Thank you for joining us as we journey through the Christian Fundamentals Discipleship course. Living for Christ is a choice that we have the privilege of making every day. The Bible is brimming with life-giving truths and rich promises from God. It tells us what He is like and sheds light on His plans and purposes for our lives. The better we understand, embrace and apply these truths, the richer our personal relationship with Him will be. How's everyone doing? All right. So those of you who I took for Bible school a long time ago, and those of you not so much on a Sunday board Bible study will know that I enjoy interaction. Okay, so please interrupt at any moment, ask questions. Uh, that's how I do things. So first of all, who's read ahead? Who's read the notes that we're going to discuss tonight? Great, that's fantastic. So put a placeholder in your notes and close your book. <laughs> Just quickly. Got to focus my contacts. Hold on. They're shifting. Everybody's book's closed. All right. So we're going to start off by asking the church, what is the church? Come. Anybody want to take a stab at what, what is the church? If that's the right way of saying it. All right. So Judith is the church. The body of Christ. Anybody else? Come, let's go. Hmm? Yeah. Sorry, excuse me for my context was shifting now when I closed my eyes for prayer. <laughs> Anybody else? The body? Judith? There's no right or wrong answer. Fellowship of the brethren? I'm not going to assess the answer. It's just, I want to just see what. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Anybody else? The called, well, someone read ahead, clearly. <laughs> the called out ones, yes. Gathering of believers. Gathering of believers? All Christians. All Christians. Last one. You're going to miss out if you don't speak. Comments looking at me very angrily. <laughs> All right, okay, we'll, we'll, allow, we'll allow it. Okay, you can open your notes back up and let's, let's read what, what it has to say with us. Okay. Michael starts off by saying, perhaps one of the most misunderstood concepts within Christianity is the realization and expression of the church. Would you guys agree with that statement? Yeah, let's, let's find out why. An incorrect understanding of what church is has led, has led to great divisions and ineffectiveness. The purpose of this lesson is to gain an accurate understanding of what church is, as well as its role within society and the world. Now, for me, in preparing this notes, I just kept thinking of what we discuss on a Sunday. But for me, a good definition of what church is and what a church should be is what we together have shared and expressed. And that is, should not be unique to Alpha Omega Christian Fellowship. That should be Every believer, every Christ once, Christians, like Nick said, should live as a family on a journey to become more like Christ, sharing His kingdom by expressing His love. All right, that's for me. That's how I would define church. Okay, let's, who's going to read 
and again, I like other people to read instead of me just hearing my monotonous voice. So we're going to be a Bible study format. Who's going to read Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to 18 from, for us? Any translation that you have is fine. Sure, you guys are passive after a hard day's work, huh? The coffee didn't work yet. Uh, Matthew 16, 13 to 18. Uh, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Great. So another question that I have is, how many questions did Jesus ask in that passage we just read? How many questions did Jesus ask? Three. No, how many questions? Some say one, some say three. I say two. Okay, for me, why do I say two? It might be the same question, but he asks it in two different ways. He says, what do, who do men say that I am? And then he says, who do you? What's the difference between men and them? Right? Their viewpoint of Jesus, maybe. Their proximity. That he is the ones that are with him are the followers or the disciples yeah. of Christ. It's just interesting for me when I read that passage, the first thing, he asks specifically the same question in two different perspectives. Who, do, who does the world or the men say that I am, and who do you say that I am? Okay, the proximity is important. 2.1 says, We see in the above passage of Scripture that the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, the foundation that He will build, that Jesus is the Christ, and the foundation that He will build His church upon. We all know that. We also see the, that the gates of Hades, the power and authority of Hades, will not prevail Against it, we will discuss this, it says, in future lessons. Do you guys know who, what the gates of Hades is? Okay, so first of all, it definitely does represent the power and authority of the enemy. But second of all, Jesus, like in Hebrew context, they always prefer to a concrete example of that representation of that power and authority. It was a physical place in that biblical times where they sacrificed animals and made, they did all kind of dodge stuff there, blood sacrifices, and it was an epitome of the enemy. It definitely, the, listen, the enemy does have power and authority because we gave it to him in the first, in Genesis. He no longer has it because Jesus has taken it away from him, but he's still the God of this world, and they do get up to nonsense, okay? And that was a place that they got up to nonsense, and that place represents the power and authority of the enemy, right? And we know Jesus has now conquered, and the, power, the gates of Hades has no longer a place on this earth, because in Jesus' name, he has given us authority. So from this point, we need to unpack what Jesus meant when he said he would build his church. So let's define church, shall we? First of all, in understanding what something is, we have to rule out what it is not. For me, it is not what. It is not what is the church, it's who. That is the biggest difference for me. 
It's not, a, it's not an inanimate object. When we use the English word what, it's, we say we're speaking to something that's inanimate. It doesn't have life. Okay? It's a, who is something that someone that you know, that you encounter and you have a relationship with? That is church. So it is not a building. It's not a place of worship necessarily or a service and it's not a religious observation or organization. Yes, our experience of church can come across in those you know, if I say, can I meet you at church? You guys know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the physical location of 43A Ringwood Drive, Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship, right? So it's not to now, but when we say, when Jesus is speaking about ecclesia, which is the word we're going to go on to next, he's talking about the people, okay? And what he's called the people to, like Craig's told us. 3.2, when Jesus first introduced the concept of church, he used the Greek word ecclesia. Now, it, we need to know when Jesus used it, it wasn't strange or unfamiliar to those in earshot, like it is to us today. When I use the word, you're like, what does that mean? Right? He was speaking to people that were familiar with that word. He used a term that was such an integral part of everyday life at the time that all hearing it would understand exactly what he meant and what the implications would be. Now remember, in Jesus' day, how many things were there? It was the temple, synagogue, and ecclesia, okay, temple and synagogue tied up into the, the in Judaism law, right? The holy temple and synagogue. But ecclesia, as we're going to discover now, means, like Craig said, the etymology of the word ecclesia is made of two segments, ek out of, and kaleo, or like we have the plural version, is to call. In other words, ecclesia means to call out, right? To call out of. Now, also, it's important to note that Greeks, Greek language is not one definition. Okay, you can't just define love in one word. And good luck trying. Ecclesia also means assembly. Okay, it was a socio-political term. This is what I want you to understand when we approach the notes. It was a socio-political term. Now, let's, let's see what that means. It's defined as follows. Called out ones, summoned to assembly for governmental or decision-making reasons. And now we're going to quote... Well, let's do 3.5. It is clear. Well, let's read. Who wants to read the quote from Ed Silvoso? And please don't be afraid of the microphone. The microphone is just for those that are not with us. The church that is not here right now that would like to partake of this message. Yes, we, we love you too, church, and we want you to hear this. So who wants to read the quote from Ed Silvoso? religious at all, since it was first developed as a ruling assembly of citizens in the Grecian democracy to govern its city-states. It consisted of men 18 years or older who had done two years of military service. In essence, people substantially committed to their city-state. In a broader sense, Ecclesia also came to mean an assembly of citizens duly convened. Sorry. When the more... So I can't read that. The hierarchical Romans replaced the Greeks in the imperial scene. The Romans assimilated the concept. Consequently, the general public in Jesus' day understood ecclesia to mean both the secular institution and the governmental system it represented. Okay, so let's, let's, let's summarize it, Salvoso. Basically, in the context of the day, 
in Greek democracy, ecclesia meant ruling assembly of not just any citizens, but citizens that gave blood, that, that were, what is, what is the best way of saying it, that they had a vested interest and they played a part in serving that state. In other words, acts of military service is not, it's called conscription, is no longer valid in this country, but you know when you go and serve your country in military warfare that it is not something taken lightly, right? So it's an assembly of citizens that, that govern a ruling assembly, right? 3.5, it is clear to see that what Jesus was referring to is his ecclesia, that he had more than just a Sunday gathering in mind. Christ was established, Christ was establishing his kingdom government on earth in order to express his victory, his rule, and reign through his people. Now, there's a word that I want to stress that we've, I think, very fortunate to go through his teaching series, is kingdom, right? We must understand that Jesus' only message was a kingdom message. Every kingdom has a king. Who is the king? Jesus, Heavenly Father, right? And what is the second part of the kingdom? What does dom mean? Domain. Who has domain? The king gave who domain? Us. All right. Let's read, a con let's, let's read number four and then I'll explain further. The real significance of why Jesus used the term ecclesia to describe his church can be more fully grasped when we understand the formal Roman association of conventus civium Romanorum. Okay? Conventus for short. Now, before I get that example, we are all familiar of embassies, right? Of foreign embassies on South African soil. If I had to go to the U.S. Embassy and I enter into that territory, what rules and laws are now in are governing my presence there? South African law, rule and law or U.S. rule and law? Has everybody gone to the U.S. Embassy for a visa? Okay, it is like you're walking into another country. First of all, everyone that works there generally is U.S. citizens and speak, and they sound like you're in America. Okay? And their laws is now takes preference. You are on foreign soil, as it were, even though you're still in the country of South Africa. So just, and that's the picture I just wanted to give you about an embassy and how embassy works. Now let's read the blue the blue point or definition of what a conventus civium Romanorum is. When a group of Roman citizens, as small as two or three, gathered anywhere in the world, it is constituted the, constituted the conventus as the local expression of Rome. Even though geography separated them from the capital of the empire and the emperor, their coming together as fellow citizens automatically brought the power and presence of Rome into their midst. So, Basically, in Roman times, when two Romans got together, they had a, a mobile virtual embassy. They established their governing country's law wherever they were, and they called it into their presence. Does that make sense? In other words, let's change the word embassy. Let's say the Roman kingdom was now present when two or more of the Roman citizens were there. Their Rome law and their kingdom and their empire was now present and manifested when these two Romans met. Do you understand how Rome worked? What was Caesar's objective in the Roman Empire? Let's see if anyone knows history. Anyone? What, 
What was Caesar of Rome? What was his main objective? What did he do? Okay, so he conquered and increased the, the Roman territory. But when he took over territory, what did he do with that territory? What does that mean? He went over Greece. Heartache for us. He took over Greece, and what did he do? He makes the Roman. Okay, what he does for me is he takes, yeah? Yeah, but what does he do to the people? Think of Jerusalem. What did he do to the people? Yeah, anyway, he... He takes the good, so like the Greek thinking and the Greek way of life, we just explained, the ecclesia took what was, well, this is, they got something quite good here. Let's take it, absorb it, let's make it our own. How do you think the Roman gods came into being? The Roman gods look very similar to the Greek gods. Why? Because they took over Greece and they renamed the gods. It'll work, let's use it. Okay? So they take of the, of the land what is good, they, they, they bring it into their own culture, but they say, now you're in Roman cult, country, Roman law, and now you must live by our laws. He reproduces Rome wherever concrete territory is. He absorbs and he, he proclaimed Rome wherever he went. Look at Jerusalem. Didn't he do the same? Right? Romans, in Jesus' time, they were governed by Roman law as well as the Hebraic law. The Roman law took preference. You need, that's why I want you to understand how Rome works. Rome takes a representation of Caesar and the kingdom and it plants it somewhere else. And it plants it somewhere else. And it plants it somewhere else. The ideologies, the way of life, who they are, their kingdom is manifested and represented and replicated wherever they went. Now this is the context, the historical context where you must understand Jesus is talking. This is why words like kingdom is used in the Bible and not necessarily governments or parties. Right? 4.2. Once we understand the context of, of, and setting that Jesus was speaking in, like I just said, it gives us a whole new perspective of what it means, what he meant when he said. So now when we read Matthew 18.20, for where there are two or three gathered together in whose name? Caesar's. No, in my name, the king, right? I am there in the midst of them. Let me ask a question. <laughs> what is heaven? Big, deep philosophical question. Anyway, that's maybe too deep. Um, you know, heaven, the, as a, as a, the purpose of Christianity, from my perspective, is not to live a good life, die, and go to heaven. Do you agree? Okay, like we learned over there. We learn to, to be a part of the kingdom that Jesus brought. And what does that mean? We take some of heaven through Jesus Christ, and we bring it down here. Jesus was heaven on earth. He says the kingdom is at hand. Why? Because he brought it here. He's manifesting it wherever he walked. Right? Heaven is not some final destination that we will go to when we die. The ultimate purpose of this earth is to be recreated under complete rule and reign, just like the Garden of Eden. Think of it. We re it's a reboot of what Genesis 1 is. What did Jesus do? Jesus is the one who spoke the word of creation, so he was involved in creation. What was the Trinity done when they said we created man in the image? He put them where? Where did the Trinity put man? Not a trick question. In the garden. On earth, right? He placed them on earth. What was the number one job for men to do? To have dominion. To represent his rule on this earth. To have an established kingdom. Nothing has changed, people. 
That's the glory. You can read through the Bible from the beginning to the end and know that the purpose of man is to enjoy God forever, but it's to manifest His kingdom here. He put Adam on the earth and He said, Have dominion. Nothing has changed. He still wants us through Jesus Christ, the second Adam, who did it right, to establish His kingdom on this earth. Heaven is where we go and we carry Jesus and we make it heaven where we are. Do you agree? you understand what I'm saying? It's a, big tra it's a tragedy to think that so many believers are just counting down the day so they can die and go to heaven. I mean, Jesus has given them the ability to bring heaven onto earth. Why do we preach 4.3.1? Why did Jesus teach us, your kingdom come? That's how he taught, taught us to pray. Amen? He wants us to bring the kingdom of heaven on earth and to manifest it, just like the conventum that we just read. Whose will will be done? His will. The king's will. His rulership. I'm going to skip to 4.4. What Christ had in mind when talking about his ecclesia was a relational and governmental body. Right? For me, I would like to say it's governmental through relationships. That's how Jesus establishes his rule. He chose the, the Hebrew nation, and the Hebrew nation's expression of rulership was what? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's relational. It's through the blood. It's not, it's not about which party gets the most votes, is then in charge. It's rulership. It's through relationship. Founded upon the truth of his lordship and divinity, commissioned to bring the ethos and the power of the kingdom of God into the earth, and to reclaim all which was lost to sin. The church is called and empowered to be God's instrument for global transformation as we continue the work and ministry that Christ started on the earth. Like I said, what God is looking for man to do has never changed since the beginning of time and creation itself. When man put Adam on, in the garden on earth and he gave him domain, he partnershiped with man. God could have done all those things without man but he chooses to involve man, to have fellowship with man, to walk in the cool of the day with man, to have conversations so that man, through his relationship with the Heavenly Father, would have domain on the earth. God purposely desires to have partnership with us to manifest his kingdom here. That's why we know he loves us so much. Isn't that a story of love? He wants us to be partakers. He wants us to be partners with him. Obviously, we have to work with him and through him for that to work. Who's going to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 to 20? Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Thanks. We are ambassadors. Another, another expression of conventum. We represent the one who sent us and the kingdom that sent us. Amen? Now, we said Christ is the king. He is the head. We all know and agree that's why we're here. That's why we are the Christ ones. That's what Christians mean. That Christ himself is both the founder and sustainer of his church. He is the Alpha and the Omega, right? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 to 23. And he put all things under his feet 
Now, I think if I'm just speaking from remembrance from Bible school here, he and his are different. He's referring to God. So let's read it. And God, the Heavenly Father, put all things under Christ's feet and gave Christ to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, Christ's body, the fullness of him who fills all and is in all. Right? Christ, if you look at the, the prophecies of Isaiah, Christ is both the Messiah and the servant. He came as the chosen one, the anointed one, to come and serve us and die for us, that he now, God has lifted him up to have authority over everything. Okay? And that authority, he is, he is the head of, of all of us sitting here today. He is our king. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18 from the New Living Translation. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all, who rises, who rises from the dead. So he is first in everything. We, we refer to Jesus as the second Adam because he is the first human being that succeeded in the mandate that God created. He did not succumb to the temptations of this world. We know he was tempted and he succeeded, right? And he birthed, just like Adam birthed humanity, Christ rebirthed a new creation, a new humanity. I don't think we appreciate the literal meaning of that. I want to bring your awareness to that. When we say we are a new creation, Jesus is not talking metaphorically. He's not talking nice words and poetic. He's talking literal. We are, through his blood, which is undefiled through the sin nature. In other words, he knew no sin in his hereditary and he knew no sin on his existence. He was sinless. In his blood, we are new creatures. We, we as a new humanity, we are no longer the old man. So all those biblical verses take, take off the old man and put on the new man, they're talking literally. The way you see yourselves, we've just done courses of Righteousness and sanctification. The whole eagle versus chicken thing, right? I want you to understand is that we were chickens and we're now transformed to eagles. Okay? It's a literal thing. So to, to go back to what you were, you're lying to yourself. Jesus has recreated us. Our DNA is restructured in the spirit realm to be we are new creations. When Paul and all the apostles are talking, they are not playing with words. They are serious. You get me? Right? Okay. In the same way, 5.2, in the same way that a physical body is governed by the head, so too is the body of Christ operates. In the same way that there's a different function and responsibilities for the various parts of the body, so too within the church. So we're going to talk about how the parts of the body are aligned and placed. I'll read for you from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 to 18. You should all be familiar with this passage of Scripture. I'm going to stress some of the words that stand out for me. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Well, New King James really throws me. I don't know if it's just me. Okay. Basically saying we are one body. One organism with many parts. Okay, they give us an example here. Verse 13, For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks. Any, question, any comments why they picked Jews or Greeks? Just for interest. Why did they pick Jews or Greeks for that passage of Scripture? <laughs> Doesn't matter. 1 Corinthians 12. 
Why did they pick Jews or Greeks? Just top of your head. Yeah. Basically, I, I agree with Jews or Gentiles in that context, but that was the biggest culture and racial divide in that time. For me, it was Jews or Greeks. The Greek way of thinking, the Greek way of life, the Gentile way, democracy versus Judaism, right? Why did they pick the next one, whether slaves or free? Again, it was the biggest social divide in that time. I don't think we understand how prevalent slavery was in Roman society and therefore in, Jude, in, Jew, in, in Jerusalem and Israel. Slaves were everywhere. Slaves were all around you. You may have been a slave and you were serving a master. You got into slavery by not paying your debts and then if you didn't pay your debts, the person that you owed the debt to now owns you. It was a real situation of life. So when he says we are one body, we are no longer distinguished between what your culture, creed, background says. You're no longer just Greek or Jew. You're no longer slave or free. And yet they were still slaves and they were still freemen. They were still Jewish and they're still Greek. But he's saying, Paul is saying that you are now one. Again, literal. Right? Let me continue. And have been all made to, the, to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, it is therefore not of the body. He's saying no, obviously. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, it is therefore not the, of the body. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would, where would be the... Where am I? Where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing... Is that correct? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. I think we can all understand the metaphor that they're giving us. Just like your body needs all these different senses and members that are responsible for their senses, so the body of Christ is comprised with many different facets and giftings, which we're going to read, that are responsible for many different facets in the outworking of his kingdom. Okay? Not one is more important than the other. It's a complementary thing, not a competition. And remember, the context in Corinthians is this is a church in divide, in competition, in a power struggle with each other, saying, I am more important than you. I'm going to have communion as the rich, eating my lavish food in my way, and the poor are going to stay over there. Again, context is important. That's why he speaks about being one. And we're going to get to that later. Now, there's a word that stands out in 6.1. He says he sets the members in their place. It means a deliberate placement. When you set something, it doesn't just mean you haphazardly tossed it around. Just like our bones are set into order and structure. It's, it's, it's purposeful. It's not coincidental. 6.2, God sets and aligns his people within spiritual families. I think we all agree and believe that. That's why we're here tonight. Psalm 68, verse 6. God sets the solitary in families. What this means is that he aligns you with people who have a vision from God and will help you discover your gifts and talents, teach you, equip, and empower you, and create room for you to grow and express these gifts within the context of that vision. Every family has a unique calling and grace from God. By joining a family, you become a recipient of that grace as well as a, as a contributor to the vision and mission they espouse. As we give our time, energy, gifting, and resources to meaningful help, 
to meaningfully help our spiritual family achieve their God-given mandate, we become partakers of the blessing of a family and are empowered through the gifts and talents of our brethren. Our lives gain a higher level of purpose, fulfillment, and impact as we work together towards something that is far greater than ourselves. Now, in reading that, I felt like uh, I was part of a company and I'm uh, encouraging my co-workers or staff to do something. Why? Because that's the culture your workplaces try and establish because that is the point of every group of humans is to work together for a common purpose and goal. So companies, some of you might be very familiar with, especially big organizations, they evangelize to you, right? I'm not speaking against it, it's important. We need to work together, right? But it's the rhetoric that I was very familiar in reading is it shouldn't be strange, which is why we talk about it in a church context because it should mean that much more. Well, let, me, let me explain. You give your time, energy, and gifting, gifting resources to your company, don't you? Right? Or your organization. To achieve their mandate. Right? Is it your vision that you're pursuing in a company? No, it's theirs. You become partakers. You get a salary. I get so annoyed with people that feel that a salary is what they deserve. No. It's not a right. you there to help your company make money if it's a profit organization, so that you get a share of that money, right? If you're not doing your job, then you should be partaking of it, okay? And by the way, as Christians, we are called higher to that. We are called to serve wherever we God placed us to as we're serving Jesus. So it's actually a higher calling. Now, the second point is also true. People do gain higher level of purpose, fulfillment, and impact in our jobs. That should be the case. Otherwise, we're just doing that to get a paycheck. Amen? You should find purpose in what you do. As a Christian, wherever God has placed you is an opportunity to manifest the kingdom. And it's not necessarily speaking and evangelizing to everybody, but it's a serving, just like Joseph in Potiphar's house, served him as he would serve God. He has called us, the believers, the Christ ones, wherever God has placed us in industry, in, in economics, wherever God has placed you, is to serve where we are as we are serving Him. And that way we minister to those around us. We just have to look at Joseph as the ultimate example of how one man can lead a whole nation basically to, under the rulership of God through his faithfulness and loyalty. Right? Anyway. Uh, Romans 12 verse 48 Does anyone want to read that for us? Sure. Thanks. Romans 12, 48. Just as our bodies have many parts, and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of, the, of one body, and we all belong to each other. In His grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy... Speak out, as much faith, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it's giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Now, for me, when I read that, it is clear when Paul is telling everybody, he says, God has given us different gifts for doing different things well. Question, does everybody have a gift? 
I love the promptness of that reply. Yes. Everybody does have a gift. That's the point. He, God has given you something. He's gifted you something so that you may give it out. Right? What Paul is saying is everyone can contribute. It's not a must. It's God has put something inside. If you remember, we're dealing with kingdom. God uses, in his scripture, uses the seed analogy so appropriately. Is he's put a seed within us that it may grow and bear fruit and multiply. And again, that's the mandate of man from the beginning of time that you must have dominion and multiply and represent. Now, it doesn't mean everyone must look the same. Everyone is very different. And that difference is the strength of the kingdom. It's in the difference of the members that everything, every need is met. It says there, if it's giving, give generously, right? If it's encouraging, be encouraged. For me, it means everybody can and should play a part. Right? So it's never something to say, well, God hasn't given me anything, so I can't really, you know, I can't really contribute. No, that's the enemy lying t- to you and lying through you. God has given every single person on this earth a gifting, a talent. Every single person. Alignment within the body of Christ is relational, not organizational. This means that the poignant question is not which church should I go to, but rather who is who is it that God is connecting me to? Who is it that God is wanting me to serve? Through discovering the answer to these questions, God is able to work through deep and meaningful relationships to bring about growth, maturity, purpose, and mutual blessing within his body. I was listening to a message today, and he summed up for me the Western pursuit very well. I'll try and capture as best as I can. He says, in today's society, people move to urban areas to seek people very similar to themselves, where they are seeking themselves and seeking self-fulfillment. In other words, what job can I go to that meets my needs? What church can I go to that meets my season and time of my needs? And which spouse or relationships can I enter into that will please me? It is no surprise that all those seekings end up being serial questions that repeat themselves. How often do people change jobs nowadays? How often do people change churches nowadays? How often do people change spouses nowadays? Everything is self-pursuit. The Western world, as we know it, as we experience it, is self-pursuing, self-fulfillment, self-gratification. The kingdom is completely the antithesis of that, as we have demonstrated. It is selfless. Jesus says you must count the cost before you follow me, right? He he took it seriously. He says this is going to be rough. Think hard, think deep, because I'm going to take you to places that is not comfortable. He doesn't promise us a rosy garden. He is a a mountain, a skilled mountaineer, a skilled hiker, on a journey saying, a storm is coming, but if you trust me, I'm going to take you to the deep and places of desperation, but we're going to get there on the end if you stay by my side, if you follow my leading. He's not a politician that we vote for in lieu of, please give me what I want, otherwise I'm voting you out. But we treat God as a politician, don't we? Lord, please can I have this? Your word says this. That's what you promised me before I elected you as the Lord and ruler of my life. But look at what I messed with her. You know, seriously, I'm reconsidering my allegiance here. No. He says, count the cost. Up front, he says, listen, it's not going to be easy. I think this is where we forget what Christianity means. If in the context of the times, these are people that gave themselves to Christianity and died. 
Okay? Their consequences were far, far more real than ours we face today. Anyway, just something, something to think on. 6.4. Right alignment within the body is vitally important for growth and influence and accountability. Now I'm going to read, I'm going to bypass the notes, sorry Michael, I'm going to read Ephesians 4.11 from my favorite, one of my favorite, the message translation. If you have a digital Bible, please follow with me. For me, the first scripture I was drawn to when I joined the ministry was Ephesians 4, specifically 11 to 16, because it was our, for the ministries international, it is the, one of the, and this church as well, the foundational for what this, who, why this church exists, because it's foundational for why every church exists. Especially, we re-articulated it because, let's just read it, 4.11, Ephesians 4.11, I'm going to read, the message doesn't really give you where 11 starts, but I'm going to read it from, where it says here, he handed out the gifts of, you got there, okay. He handed out gifts of apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor teacher to train Christ's followers in skilled servant work, working within Christ's body, the church. We've discussed that. Christ's body, the church. And this is the key for me and why I'm choosing this translation. Until we're all moving rhythmically and easily with each other, efficient and graceful in response to God's Son. Fully mature adults, fully developed within and without fully alive like Christ. No prolonged infancies among us. Please, we'll not tolerate babies in the woods, small children who are an easy mark for imposters. God wants us to grow up, to know the whole truth and to tell it in love, like Christ in everything. We take our lead from Christ, who is the source of everything we do. He keeps us in step with each other. So important. Christ keeps us in step with each other. His very breath and blood flow through us nourishing us so that we will grow up healthy in God, robust in His love. For me, I just love the way the message puts it. You see, what is the purpose of the... When the for Ephesians, what we just read, defines what happens when a church works as God intended it to do. He says there, working within Christ's body, the church, until... We're all moving rhythmically and easily with each other, efficient and graceful in response, not out of our own flesh and what we can do, but in response to God's Son. And what is the point of the gifts, the five ministerial gifts, the prophets, the evangelists, the teachers, the pastors, right? What is the point? The point is to develop fully mature adults, just like we are put in families and parents are responsible to raise and mature sons and daughters. Right? God has established families and God has established family order in the church just the same. Do you all agree? 6.4.1 It is vital to understand that being a member of the body of Christ means that we are positioned to be discipled, trained, and equipped for the working of ministry. What is ministry? Hmm? Serving? Anyone else? How do we define ministry? You stumped you guys there. Yeah, we said works of service. Any any others? Just want to hear people's opinion. There's no right or wrong. I'll tell. 
Okay? A place where you can exercise your gifting. That's a good answer, yeah? Anyone else? Yeah, all right answers. For me, should we define ministry as existing within these walls? Should we define ministry as something only members of staff or Alpha and Omega do? No. We just said, we just read in Romans 12, everybody has a gift. And I like what Carmen says, is using the gift that God has given you, and we combine it to Craig's answer, exercising that God gifted you to bring, to preach Christ to them or to bring Christ into their lives, or to bring the kingdom of heaven into manifestation of wherever we are. That is ministry. So, like we said with Potiphar, you can do it in your workplace, and that's actually what God has asked you to do, is bring the kingdom of heaven into your workplace. That is ministry. There's no one as small, fast, you can't, it doesn't matter how small or how big, ministry is always bringing the manifest presence of kingdom of God into where you are, into your midst. That is ministry. If it's loving your wife, if it's making a dinner, if it's whatever, that's ministry. It, it's a term that I think we get tripped up on because we think works of ministry is only for those who are ministers. But guess what? We are all ministers now. That under Christ, we are all ministers. We are the priesthood now, and he is the, the chief priest. Amen? The responsibility for ministry does not fall primarily on those who are employed. We just said that by the church, but rather each and every member. Amen? Every member of the kingdom are kingdom ambassadors. That's the beauty of the kingdom of heaven. God has appointed elders and overseers within the body for the purpose of nurturing, protecting, and equipping the church, just like a parent does for his family. The church is therefore a family of people united in love and purposed through Christ Jesus, authorized, empowered, commissioned to co-labor with him in releasing his kingdom rule and reign within the earth. Basically what we've said up to this point is God partners with man to establish his will. His kingdom come on earth. Do you guys want to take a break now before we wrap up? No? I'm seeing no. Should we do a should we instill Greek thinking here and bring democracy and election? Let's take five minute break. No, we're going Roman and dictatorship. Let's keep. <laughs> Take a five-minute break. All right. So continue. Point seven: membership to a local church family. Who remembers membership class before you became members? Those who are members of Alpha Omega, who remembers the? No. <laughs> in my situation. Problem is I can't, I'm involved in it. Right, so this, those of you who do remember, this should be familiar. Membership is a contract. No one objected. Is covenant and contract the same? Let me ask, let me ask, I'm asking. Let the people answer. You say yes? I'll say it this way. Contract was supposed to be the modern representation of covenant, but in drawing up contracts, we have diluted the meaning of covenant. Right? Covenant in historical times, not just biblical times, was something that was not taken lightly. Like the, the Native American Indians had blood brothers to change a completely historical context. It meant the same thing. 
that your blood that goes in your veins now flows in mine. We are bond together forever. That's the Native American Indian context of covenant. Now, Jesus created, uh, God created a covenant with Abraham, Abrahamic covenant, which was also a blood, blood covenant, those who remember HFBI. The animal was cut, blood was shed, and God chose the Abrahamic family as his chosen family. Just an interesting point. Just like Genesis 1, he chose a, a man to reinstate his kingdom on this earth and his lineage. Because Adam failed, God now creates another chance for humanity and he does it through Abraham. Guess what? Did Abraham succeed? Did Abraham and his seed succeed? No, they are, they are even the ones that rejected Jesus. So guess what then Jesus and God does again? But this time he comes down and he cuts the covenant with God. He sheds his blood and now we are now part of his family. So covenant, bottom line is what I'm saying is covenant is not something you take lightly. So when we say membership is a covenant, it's not saying contract. It's something that means life-altering, it's important. It's a partnership. It's an agreement between individuals from all walks of life that they will stand by one another, supporting each other, and work together to see the realization of a common vision. It's a commitment. Marriage is a covenant. Do you agree? Yes. Yeah. So then... That's part people forget. Um, listen, <laughs> there's all reasons why things happen nowadays. I'm not going to judge, but the bottom line is I think we've, marriage is no longer held in that esteem any longer. It's just a reality. Uh, yeah. It's a commitment to walk in close and open relationships with the said vision. Support those relationships and vision with your time, gifts, and resources. Receive teaching, equipping, and correction from those in authority. Use your influence to help the growth and development of others. Let me ask you, if we said, we said membership is a covenant just like marriage is a covenant. Is, is good times through all the years of your life, a honeymoon experience guaranteed and promised in marriage? No. It says in sickness and in, you know, till death do us part, the sickness and in health. Isn't it despite what we go through? Listen, in a church body, conflict is inevitable. If you're a human, conflict is inevitable within yourself and outside of yourself. That is what it means to be human, right? Adam fell, we have conflict on this earth. But covenant means we work through it. Right? No matter what the circumstances, no matter sickness or health in the body, we work through it, we talk to each other, and we get past it. Because the relationship is not negotiable. Amen? All right. 7.2. When the Bible speaks of covenant, it speaks of a sharing and partaking of lives. Your life is now my life. I am your brother's keeper. <laughs> I'm reminded um, when Cain kills Abel, and his blood, literally, the Bible says, cries out to God. And then he asks him, where is your brother? He says, what am I, my brother's keeper? That is the real tragedy, is that we are our brother's keeper. In the kingdom of heaven, you are your brother's keeper. You are responsible for where your brother is. That's what it means to be a partaker of each other's life. Right? So if someone says, that's not my problem, it is your problem. If your brother is hurting, it says, if any part of the body is hurting in the body of Christ, then all everybody is hurting it's something we have to understand right what is what is on my life flavors yours and vice versa for this reason there are some scriptural prerequisites to becoming a member of the church and like i said if you're familiar with the membership course and covenant that you take in this church you will be familiar with these concepts 
Each person must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and have publicly confessed Him as through water baptism. Embrace the vision, mission, and values of this fellowship. Embrace these is more, is more simply than acknowledging them with mental assent and saying, yeah, I agree to it. It means to make them your own. Like we said, if you do it in your company, right? When you sign a contract with a company, yes, it's diluted, but you're entering into a covenant with them. Right? You are embracing what they pursue as what you want to pursue. You're helping them pursue it. Otherwise, why are you there? Right? Let's use nursing for example, because I think that's a good example. When I, I think of, nurses do they, they take some form of the Hippocratic oath, right? In other words, the way I understand the Hippocratic oath and, oath, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you paramount the health and well-being of every patient above your own needs, right? That is their goal and vision. So hospitals and doctors are paramount and their goal and vision is paramount. And if you're part of that organization, you're helping for the well-being of every single patient and, in other words, customer that enters into your workplace. So, you see, every asset of our lives, we are, we are helping someone or some organization in a common goal and pursuit. And church, as in the family, as in the body of Christ, is the same. And we are pursuing the kingdom, right? His kingdom to be manifested on this earth. It is important that every person who belongs to the body carries the same heart and co-labor in the mandate that God has given that particular spiritual family. Understand, accept, and honor the responsibility of elders towards members. Understand and take responsibility of a member towards elders. We are going to discuss that just now. Now, listen. I could have forgiven you if, I said, well, if, you, if we had this course a few weeks ago and you said, well, I don't really know what the vision, mission, and core values of this church. But it's literally written on the walls. <laughs> not of our hearts, but on the walls. <laughs> Okay, it's not meant to stay there. It's not meant to just be some nice decorative element. The reason we put it forefront as we walk into the church is that's who we are. That is not a mission statement. That is who we are. That is our essence. We are a family. That's how we started it. And listen, that should be the mission statement or the hard value of who we are for every single believer because that's what we're discussing here. Manifesting the kingdom of God by expressing his love is a global Christian heart. If we're not doing that, then are we really Christian? Question. Are we being Christ to the world? Question. Not going to answer. Um, in order to remain vitally connected to the body of Christ, it is important to throw roots within a spiritual family for the purpose of growth, mutual blessing, and effective service. Psalm 92 verse 13. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of of our God. The key word there is planted. Listen, I'm not a green fingered person, but I know for a root for a plant to be established in a place, it doesn't take it takes time. It's not something that happens quickly. Your roots have to grow deep, they have to grow laterally, they have to absorb the soil be those are green fingers can help me here, right? So when you plant it it means you're established there, you're set there for time for a long period of time, right? So church hopping is not, is not scriptural because you, if you, then you're a pot plant moving from one place to the other and therefore pot plants don't really grow beyond the pot. 
your thinking will restrict you. God wants us to be planted, right? Then you can flourish. 7.4, meeting together regularly forms a part, a vital part of church life, just as it does in family life. It should therefore be considered as a priority in our lives. Now this for me is one of the main things that spoke to me when I joined ministry. Let me ask a question. Those of you who have extended members of family, how often do you see them if they're not within your own household? Americans. Yeah, once a year. Anyone else? Is it something like that? You, should, you see them more often or not at all? Less, right? Today, we have more forms of communication, but we, which gives us the reason not to spend more time with our families. Sometimes it's maybe better we shouldn't spend time with our families. Like the Bible says, maybe it's better that you don't get together. But anyway, something that I've said when I joined is that we say the church is not the building. We said that today, right? Church is not the building. But you treat and you visit the people as often as you visit the building. Once a week for 15 minutes. Right? I lost all you, most of you, on Sunday. And maybe if I'm lucky, I spoke to one or two or three of you on Sunday for a few period of time. Right? We are meant to spend time together. We're meant to have life together often as possible, intermingling. Right? Society today makes it very difficult. I'm not going to deny that. It's a reality. Work, our working days are longer. Right? The, the pressures of life are harder. And our households are smaller. Biblical times, there were many nucleus family in one roof. Right? Today, every nucleus family is in their own under roof and they, therefore to visit their own extended of family is even hard. But we are meant to live life together. We are meant to partake of one another's life, right? So it basically do not forsake the gathering of the brethren is basically what I'm saying. We, men, we, we call it Alpha and Omega fellowship. And if we don't fellowship, then are we really Alpha and Omega? Right? We, we need to spend time together. Hebrews 10 verse 24 to 25 from the New Living Translation. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. I think some translations would be creative in how we can get together, basically, right? And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. For me, that spoke to me as well when I joined ministry, is that let's come up with creative ways in that we can spend time with one another and enjoy each other's company and where we can have a place of encouragement. You know, we can think in this modern-day world of creative ways to get together. It's not beyond our human ability. It is well, we are well capable of doing that. Amen? All right. Being a part of a spiritual family is also essential for the sake, and growth, sake of growth and accountability. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your spiritual leaders and do what they say. Their work is to watch over your souls. And they keep, they are accountable to God. Give them reason to do this with joy and not with sorrow. That would certainly not be for your benefit. Okay, before we go into the role of elders within the body, it says you need to know who you are accountable to, to because they need to know, let me read that again. You need to know who you are accountable to because they need to know who they are accountable for. So as a pastor, that's a heart-shuddering verse that I'm going to have to give account to God for every heart that He has entrusted for me to shepherd, to care, and to represent His heart and love for. 
some people, it says they do this in a way that is pleasurable for them. For some people, it's easy to shepherd. There are people when you say this way or that way, sure, no problem, or okay, no problem, and there's, there's, there's compliance and it's easy. Other people make it a bit more difficult. But at the end of the day, as we're talking about our place in the body and knowing where it is that we belong, it's important, as this, this point says, it's important to know who I'm accountable to. In other words, God, who have you given to, sh to shepherd me? What shepherd have you placed in my life so that I can make it known to them that I'm looking to them for shepherding, my heart is open to them for teaching, for correction, for guidance, and so that they, in turn, have the freedom and the liberty to guide. Because from a pastor's point of view, there's nothing... I won't say nothing more frustrating, but nothing more disheartening than feeling you want to speak into somebody's life, but not feeling that you have the freedom to do so. That's really rough. Yeah, I was going to say, I was going to say, you read that as a pastor and you're like, woe is me. Because <laughs> you're not responsible for your own, but you're responsible for those that you lead. And basically, you need to be humble in every, especially those that are Carrying the ministerial gifts, humility is the number one prerequisite because you have a big responsibility. Okay, let's continue. The role of the elders within the body. An elder is a person whom God has given oversight and governing responsibilities within the life of the local fellowship. The Greek word episkipos literally means overseer and is translated in different places within scripture as elder, shepherd, pastor, bishop, or overseer. So we're going to discuss these terms as the functions and responsibilities of an elder. Now, I'm going to quote Simon Sinek here. It's one of my favorite quotes. He defines leadership as this. Leadership is not about being in charge. A lot of people would say leadership is being in charge. No. Leadership is about taking care of those in your charge. He stole that from the Bible. That is what true leadership is. That's what Jesus demonstrated. He took care of us because we were in his charge. Leaders, true leadership is about taking care of those in your charge. I'm not going to read the scriptural references. You can read those, but we're going to discuss each point. Overseeing. This has to do with managing and administrating the affairs of the local church. Right? To oversee, just like in a workplace. Someone... Manager overseas. Shepherding. It says, feed, nurture, and care for the people of God. I said, yeah, lead, feed, care, and protect, just like a natural shepherd would. Shepherd was a very, very literal example in the Bible because it was a very pronounced profession in those days. You had to lead your sheep by going ahead of them and calling them by their names and whistling to them, and they knew your voice. So the shepherd would go ahead. He wouldn't drive the sheep with a stick, right? He would feed them, make sure they go to the right pastures. The Lord lays me down in green pastures, right? He would care for them. If they got sick or hurt or got lost, he would leave the 99 and seek of the one. And he would protect them from wolves who are dressed in sheep's clothing that would come in on the side gate, right? It was literal. This is what shepherds did in those days, Right? To rule, it basically means to govern or manage the vision, values, and methods for the specific spiritual family. To rule, like I said, to lead those in your charge. To rule. To preach and teach, 
to proclaim the prevailing, timely, and relevant Word of God, to teach basic, down-to-earth, practical application of the Word. The difference between preaching and teaching, I think for me, is one is a proclamation, and one is very instructional and breaking down and you know, explaining. An important one is to demonstrate it, to set an example. A lead, that's how, when Jesus calls those in shepherds to lead, it's by leading by example, just like he did. Michael discussed the ultimate example of how God demonstrated us, how Jesus demonstrated that we should love one another. He washed the disciples' feet and then gave the command. He first demonstrated it in a practical explanation of what it means to love one another as I have loved you, and then he teaches and instructs us. It's to set an example to demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. This is how, how you lead. And of course it is to pray, to watch over the souls of those entrusted to them in prayer and intercession. Amen? Those are your roles in the roles of the, the, the function and responsibilities of the elders of this house. The roles of the members within the body. So what, if you're a member of this house, what is your role? If you didn't know, it's too late now, you're going to find out. As previously defined, a member is anyone who has formed a covenant with a spiritual family and has become an active, contributing member of the body. Amen? They have found a place of belonging. Now, Dad's favorite one, first one, is attendance and participation. You know why? Like we just said, a family wants to spend time together. It's not something that we have a list and we tick you off. Honestly, we don't track attendance. We just say, was that member of the family at the table today? No. Oh, we missed them. That's how we are. We don't track attendance in this church, if you didn't know. So it just is, when have I last seen my family member? Right? If you don't see your family members for a period of time, you lose connection, you lose communication, you don't know what's going on with their life. It's important to get together, because that's what it means to be the member of the body of Christ, is to have life with one another. The life of the church is found in the united and active participation of its members. We need to value time spent together. Another one is to serve. Like we said, every person has a gift. Everyone can contribute something. So a healthy member contributes towards the greater vision with the gifts and talents that the Lord has given them. By following the example of Christ and in serving others' needs. Again, serving shouldn't just be introspectively into this body. I would love for a place where this body is serving out. We're so overflowing with the gifts of service that it's overflowing outside of our community and our families. Amen? Embrace the vision. We adopt the vision of the house as our own and work out our own personal vision within the context thereof. In other words, that is not something, like we said, that's not somewhere written on the wall, just like Jesus said, it's not written, or I don't know who it was in the New Testament, to be honest. It wasn't written on tablets of stone, but it's written on the walls of our hearts. In other words, it's not something that we know in our heads. It's not something oh, I can just rattle off the vision of this house, but it's something that I'm involved with, and I take it personally. It means something to me. Amen? And Dad likes quoting that whole thing, show me your checkbook and I'll show you your, whatever, what is it, priorities. But basically, you need to have a vested interest in the house. In other words, it's not something that we demand as in ours Alpha and Omega, but you yourself know it's got good teaching on what it means to give financially, right? And that's why we only do it once a month. It's that you want to support the family that you're part of. It's as simple as that. 
The giving of first fruits, tithes, and offerings empowers the body of Christ to fulfill its mandate, as well as communicating honor and blessing. Do you guys agree with those statements? Amen? Receptivity towards elders. I think Michael explained that. Be open to their teaching, guidance, and correction. Acknowledge the role that God has appointed them to play and give them the honor due to perform the task with joy. Be willing to obey the counsel they give. Amen? Again, we're all human. We're all prone to get ourselves in place of ourselves and then we, we get out of that thing. In other words, we, we might not like what we hear from the elders. That's really where we test it. That's really where you test it if you're in covenant or not. Amen? Michael, what's your favorite? Submission only begins when you do not agree. Okay. Pray. To pray for those in authority as well as our fellow brethren. I'm going to tell you that's one of the most important things you can do as a family member of this house is to pray for those in leadership. They need your prayer. The prayer, is val the prayer that you give is valued. It's, you see, sometimes people see the world sees leadership as something that is something that should be pursued, but the Bible always tells us that it's a responsibility that should not be taken lightly because a lot is demanded of those in leadership. And it takes its toll. And your prayer is vital for that. Amen? Holy Communion. We're not going to spend too much time here on communion. Once a Sunday we get this message, so it should be fresh. Once a, once a month. But it's what it represents. What, and that's what communion is always the emblems, what it represents. Communion in the New Testament is something that relates directly to the life of the church. In our modern context, the word is most commonly used to refer to the practice of partaking of the emblems of the body and the blood of Christ. Generally together with our, with our brethren, right? We do it together in the gathering once every month in this house. The emp I think we're doing it on this Sunday. So who would like to listen intently and then share with us with the rest of the church on Sunday? Anybody want to contribute? No? I tried, Michael, I tried. Okay. okay, maybe let's finish and let's see if the Lord touches someone's heart. It would be awesome to see someone different giving communion. The emphasis in Scripture, however, is not so much about the emblems themselves, but rather on what those emblems represent. That's what the word emblem means resemble, right, what they resemble, and the accomplishment they signify. Amen? Holy Communion is also referred to as the Lord's Supper, is a significant emblematic act of worship and fellowship within the life of the church. Partaking of the bread and the wine, not grape juice, are symbolic of our, that's just my personal thing, sorry, symbolic of our partaking of the body and blood of Christ. They are, these are the emblems of the new covenant. Remember, we entered into a covenant that Christ established between God and those who believe in Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. Be good, Mike. Who wants to read Matthew 26, verse 26 to 28 for us? Practicing for Sunday. <laughs> and as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many 
for the remission of sins. Sorry, remission of sins. Thanks, Carmen. Because I take this as a voluntary thing for Sunday or not? <laughs> <laughs> this new covenant speaks not only of the right relationship with God. Let's ask a question referring to a section that we've done before. Give me a term that defines right relationship with God. Hmm? Righteousness. For me, the best definition of righteousness is not just right standing, it's right relationship with God. Right? So now we are righteous because we are in right relationship with God. This new covenant speaks not only of right relationship with God through Christ, but also right relationship with one another as his body. Do you agree with me when I say your relationship with God and the quality of it and the health of your relationship with God is demonstrated with your relationship of your brothers and sisters? It's literal. Jesus commanded us to partake of communion together regularly. It's not something we just do once in our Christian faith and move on. It's, it's a, you see, it's important that we partake of those emblems together because it's a joint thing. It's not about you and your relationship with Christ because you and your relationship with Christ deals with everybody. It's not an isolated, solitary, selfish thing. It's a selfless thing. Amen? I'm not going to read 1 Corinthians 11, 23 to 26. You guys hear that generally once a month. Let's go to a Greek word. The Greek word for communion is? Huh? What it? Kinonia. Not koinonia. Okay? <laughs> Every time you see O and I, it's E. Kinonia. All right? Kinonia. It's a complex word, indeed, for which there is no single equal in English, indeed. In Scripture, it is translated as fellowship, sharing, participation, and contribution. I'm going to read you a quote from the Bible study magazine which you have there. Kinonia depicts an interactive relationship between God and believers who are sharing. It's a very good word for kinonia. Sharing new life through Christ. The Greek word kept, captures the entirety of this relationship. It involves active participation. Another good word. In Christian community. Another good word. Sharing in spiritual blessings and giving material blessings. Let me put it to you this way. In the, new, in the early church in Acts, where they sold all their possessions, grouped it together so that they can all live together in a community, kinonia is used very much in that context. Now, a lot of people say, well, I must sell everything. The context of Acts is that a lot of immigrants went to Jerusalem. In other words, they were coming from other countries, right? Most of what they had was on their backs. So the, the community together that was in Jerusalem would sell so that they now... In other words, the people living there would sell what they could have to now support a whole bunch of immigrants. In other words, they didn't live for themselves anymore. They lived for each other. Kinonia, it surrenders the I for the we. It's about let's work together through Christ. Christ is at that center. Emphasis is placed on the holy communion of the saints. It is an interactive, sacred gathering of sacred people those who have been washed, redeemed, and unified by the blood of Christ. I'm going to try to find something for you that I... Kinonia describes what connects us to God 
and to each other through Christ. The variety of uses in the New Testament reveals that kinonia involves a deeper level of fellowship than an informal social gathering. The essential element of kinonia is participation. Christ is what connects us. And that for me is the key. Kinonia is Christ is what connects us. We should value all that we hold in common with as followers of Christ regardless of our differences. Do you understand what kinonia means? Now, if you don't yet, we can tell you what it definitely does not mean and the complete antithesis of what kinonia is. And Paul rebukes it, basically in the whole book of Corinthians, but specifically 1 Corinthians 11 verse 17 and 20 to 22. Because why? They're showing a genuine lack of communion. They're being selfish. In our human English modern words, is they're being selfish here in this context. They're fighting for themselves, their own rights, what's important to them and not the importance of everybody. Yeah. So from verse 17, 1 Corinthians 11. But in the following instructions, I cannot praise you. For it sounds as if more harm than is more harm for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together, like we said earlier. But better is that you don't get together. When you meet together, you are not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some, you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry where others get drunk. What? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly will not praise you for this. Now, these are people that are not just... It's in the emblematic practice of communion, they are completely defiling the meaning of it. They are partaking of the meals in themselves in their own little huddle, while others go hungry. Some are taking too much wine and getting drunk. You understand the context. It's a family that is in chaos, selfish, reigning supreme. The believers in Corinth had revealed the true state of their hearts through the state of their communion. In truth, it was not communion, but rather each one looking out for himself, which is the exact opposite of what kinonia truly means. The state of our hearts when partaking of the Lord's Supper is vitally important. Paul carries on this discourse by giving the following warning. And this is why we give this warning uh, when we partake of communion. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27 to 31. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily, in other words, not taking what it resembles significant and seriously and remembering what the Lord has done, is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread and drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is the church, if you're not doing it in a manner where you're glorifying the unity of the brethren, then you shouldn't be doing it at all. You're eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. This is why many of you are weak and sick and have some have died. But if we continue to examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Another way I can put it is that, let me ask a question. If we... If we refuse, and that's a key word, if we refuse to forgive someone else, does God forgive us? It's a hard question, but there's biblical grounding to it. 
If you as a Christian believer refuse to release the forgiveness that Christ has given you unto others, what does Christ do then do to us? Hello? I'll give you a nice story, but what happens if you don't? If you purposely refuse to forgive someone else? So let's say, let's say I offend you here, saying something wrong about you, and then you, in your heart, refuse to forgive me. What does Christ say? You're right, he did tell us to forgive. But what does he do? So speak. He withholds that forgiveness because it's not in evidence of your life. It's not something now, you haven't done what I've told you, so I'm going to keep what, you, what I've promised you. No, he's given us forgiveness, like you said. He's given it to us. But in giving it to us, we've thrown it away. So he can't not forgive you because you're not living out the forgiveness that he's given you. Right? The, the example that I gave you, that book that I quoted when I ministered the other day, um, when Jesus says, forgive someone 70 times 7, is Jesus used a, a rabbinical technique to quote a specific point in Scripture in Genesis. Uh, when I told you the story, please help me, was Abimelech, Genesis 4, when um, basically it's a, just have to know, it's a historical person in Genesis who was known for his violence, his anger, his hatred, and he said, it's, if anybody just touches me, I'm going to... The descendant of Cain. He's going to slaughter them. So in other words, it's humanity at its worst, where it's not about, it's about vengeance and absolute vengeance. Jesus and the descendant of Cain says there, I'm going to do this to them 70 times 7. So Jesus takes that and he, re he, he replaces that vengeance and total anger with complete forgiveness. In other words, whatever is the essence of who you are needs to be forgiveness. There is no limit to forgiveness. That, the word 7 times 7 will get hooked up on us, but it means limitless forgiveness. It's who you are, not how many times you do it. So if you, are, if you are in every part of you is forgiving, then you cannot help but forgive because Christ is in you and he's given you that. But if you're withholding forgiveness, guess what? Something is wrong with your relationship with God. And you, you, you're preventing him from working through you. Therefore, he, it's, he cannot work that forgiveness out because you're blocking the chain. You get it? I don't know where I went that way. Anyway. <laughs> Thanks. Okay, 10.6.1. I think I was there. Paul refers to drinking in an unworthily manner. We've discussed most of this already. Paul says that if we eat the bread and drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, we are eating and drinking God's judgment upon ourselves. Right? Like we said. The body Paul is referring to is not the physical body of Christ as represented by the emblems. It is the church of Christ, his body. Like we said, it's his kingdom, his ecclesia. Our attitude towards one another in partaking of the Lord's Supper in the spirit of true communion should reflect Christ's attitudes towards us. The New Testament is full of verses concerning what our attitude ought to be towards our brethren. There are in fact 58 references to one another, and we're going to refer to they are referred in the in the appendix that follows this lesson. Paul summarizes it in Romans 12, verse 9 to 10. Don't just pretend to love others. I love that. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with a genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. 
Listen, those are sobering words. Because this world is rife with pretense, pretense of love. Right? He says, don't just pretend. He knows what humans are like. He knows we just want to put on our face when we come to church, smile, everything is great, fantastic. Hi, brother, how are you doing? I'm great. And you, awesome. And then you go home and you're like, ugh, life sucks. Right? You're not loving your brother in that instance because you're not being honest with him. Love is a true representation of yourself and giving yourself to them and allowing it to be given back. It's being open, no masks. He says, hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good, right? Love each other with genuine, be real affection and take delight in honoring each other. Jesus taught that the mark of genuine discipleship was not the miracles we did, the prayers we prayed, or even how blessed we were. The evidence of true discipleship is that we love one another and that our love is evident for all to see. This is how the world will know, that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. Amen? That's what he said. The new commandment I give unto you. And it shouldn't really be a commandment. It should be, a, it should be who, we, who we as Christians are. And that's John 13, 34 to 35. So let's conclude. The word church has probably taken a whole new meaning to you as a result of this lesson. Has it? Right. Here are some key points. A revelation of Jesus Christ forms the foundation the church is built on. Jesus himself builds the church, and he has. The church is one big family made up of smaller family of believers. That's why Michael's, he's said that this Alpha and Omega are going to participate with the churches of Pinelands in the celebratory of, of Easter from Maundy Thursday. What's it called? Maundy Thursday, Good Friday, and Easter Sunday. Right? If we as churches can't come together, then we're also failing to live as one body. God aligns us within families for our spiritual growth and development. Every believer has a calling and purpose within the scope and the vision of their spiritual family. Whenever believers gather together in the name of Jesus, his kingdom power and presence is in their midst. Remember the conventum. God desires for his people to embody the spirit of Christ's selfless love in their communion so as to be an example to the world. The church mandate is to continue with Christ's ministry of reconciliation, like Christ said. Now, I can't personally apply this to your life, so you will have to do it. That's the whole point of Christianity, right? We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.